When I was growing up, uh, one of my younger brothers, I think it was four or five at the time, he would lock himself in the bathroom and perform science experiments where he would turn on the hot water, he would get as much dish soap as he possibly could, fill up the sink, and the whole bathroom would become this giant bubbly mess. And he'd walk out of the bathroom, he'd put his finger in the air, and he'd say, science. (laughs) And that became a family joke for the next decade, where we'll stick our finger in the air and just say science, and we're picking on one of my brothers. And since a lot of you know my brothers, I will not let you know which brother this is uh, for the sake of uh, his well-being. But when we think about the field of science, there's some things that probably should blow our mind. Did you know that there are an estimated 200 trillion billion stars in the known universe? That's a 200 followed by 21 zeros. That's wild, a number that we can't even comprehend. That's more than the seven and a half sextillion grains of sand on the earth. That's more than the three trillion trees that exist on our planet. But this is what gets me. Let's say that I have a, a cup of water and I pour out 10 drops of water onto the table. There are more H2O molecules in those 10 drops of water than there are stars in the universe. There are more than 200 trillion billion H2O molecules in those 10 drops of water. It's crazy how big the universe is, yet how small and precise things are at the same time. Do you know that humans have discovered more of the solar system than the ocean? We've discovered about 10%, maybe a little less, of the ocean. Did you know that there's enough DNA in your body to stretch from the sun to Pluto, rip Pluto, and back 17 times. Just DNA in your body. And the list of science that could blow our mind, I mean, the list could go on and on. But when we start to dig into science, we understand in greater and greater depth that creation points to the creator. More than just pointing to God, creation screams that God exists, screams that there's an intelligent designer. I think of Psalm 19, the heavens declare, they shout, they scream the glory of God. All we need to do is look up at the night sky and say, there must be a creator. When we think about the irreducible irreducible complexity of the human cell, when we think about just the smallest aspects of God's creation, when we think about the fine-tuning of the universe, when we think about how big yet how small God's creation is, we just have one response. God is great. and we are small. Now, if we believe that God is great, but he's not good, then we believe that God is an evil tyrant, a dictator. But flip it around. What if we believe that God is good and not great? Well, then we believe that God is loving, but he wouldn't have the power to influence or affect our life. We believe that God is both great and good. And that's what we're going to see in our text tonight, that we need both. We need to hold a high view of God, God's greatness, his majesty, his glory. But at the same time, we need to hold to his goodness, his nearness, his kindness, and his mercy. So we're going to be in Isaiah tonight. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 40. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. If you have your phone, you can open up to Isaiah 40. I'll be reading out of the 
English Standard Version tonight. We've identified Isaiah 40 as maybe the pivotal, the foundational text of our series, uh, which is called Sovereign Overall. So as we're in Isaiah 40 tonight, I'm going to start in verse 12. Follow along with me. Who has measured the waters in the middle of his hand? Marked off heaven's hand. The dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and hills in a balance. Let's pause there. You see what Isaiah is asking? He's asking a series of rhetorical questions and they all demand the same answer, don't they? Only God. Only God could measure the ocean in the hollow of his hand. See what he's saying? <laughs> that God can fit the ocean in his palm. That's wild. Did you know that there's 700 million cubic kilometers of water just in the Pacific Ocean? To put that in perspective, let's say that we cover the great state of Texas one kilometer deep in water. It would take 1,000 states of Texas to fill up the entire Pacific Ocean. And what does Isaiah say? God can hold the ocean in the palm of his hand. What does he say next? He marked off the heavens with a span. A span was actually the, dif- the distance between a thumb and a pinky. This is a span. And Isaiah is saying that God can measure the entire universe, what we believe is 93 million light years across, with a span. It's a big hand, isn't it? What does he say next? Who's enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and hills in a balance? God is, Isaiah is saying that God could take the entire dust of the earth and, and put it in a basket and carry it around. He's saying that he can measure the mountains in scales, the hills in a balance. Imagine picking up the great Mount Everest, all 350 trillion pounds of mass, and putting it on a scale. Who can do that? Only God can do that. Now, Isaiah is not being literal. Here's what he's doing. He's being metaphorical. He's trying to paint some word picture that can give us an idea, somehow trying to wrap our mind around God's greatness and his majesty. Look at verse 13. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? What man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult? Who who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Again, he's asking rhetorical questions, but the answer changes. Here, the answer is no one. No one could teach God. It says, it uses the phrase, the spirit of the Lord. It could be translated, the mind of the Lord. In other words, Isaiah is asking, who could measure God's intellect? Or to put it in today's language, who on earth could design an IQ test that could somehow measure God's intelligence? No one. Who could write an ACT that would adequately score God's IQ? No one. He's limitless in knowledge and understanding. Who has taught God what justice is? Who has ever been consulted by God for advice? No one. It's amazing that God doesn't need us, yet he desires to have a relationship with us. All the knowledge of God It's like the Pacific Ocean, our knowledge is like a drop in a bucket. He's limitless in knowledge and understanding. And the knowledge that you and I do possess is simply because God has chosen to reveal those things to us. He teaches us, not the other way around. He questions us, 
not the other way around. Look at verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offerings. Verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. A drop from the bucket and dust on a scale. (laughs) When measuring something, do you care about the little piece of dust that's left on the scale? Or when you're emptying the bucket, do you care about the last drop of water in the bottom? No. Unless you're Brian Niemeyer enjoying his first cup of coffee in the morning, then every drop matters. But for the rest of us, do we care about that last drop? No, it's inconsequential. It's immeasurable. It doesn't matter. What he's saying is that the most powerful nations in the world are so insignificant compared to God's greatness and his majesty. They're not even worth measuring. And then he makes a reference to Lebanon. When you talked about Lebanon, you're talking about the forest of Lebanon, specifically the cedars of Lebanon. It's what King Solomon used to build his house and his temple. It was this famous forest, the biggest forest in the known world. And what he's saying is that the, the cedars, the, the fuel for the fire, and then the animals that lived in the forest, the sacrifices, would never be enough to somehow give God what he deserves in terms of animal sacrifices. It says all the nations are has nothing before him. They're accounted as less than nothing. It might be helpful for us to understand just a brief outline of the book of Isaiah to, to get what he's talking about. In Isaiah, the book is divided fairly neatly. Chapters 1 through 39, Isaiah's writing to his immediate audience, that 700s BC, who's under siege by the Assyrians. But then the audience changes in verse 40. Isaiah is writing to the future. He's writing to the Jews who are in exile. 586 BC, the Babylonians come in. They defeat the two southern tribes. They take them away for a 70-year exile in Babylon. That's the audience of 40 and following. That's the audience of our text tonight. But for either audience, imagine what they've gone through. The audience of the first 39 chapters, they lived under the thumb of the Assyrians, a nation that was this close to wiping them off the face of the earth. Did the Assyrians seem like less than nothing to the Jews? No. Well, then there's the Babylonians. They were the ones that defeated them, the ones that marched them off into exile. Did they seem like less than nothing? No. So what's he saying? Isaiah's not saying that they're powerless. Instead, he's saying when you compare the greatness and the power and the strength and the majesty of God to the Assyrians and the Babylonians, they're less than nothing. They are so insignificant by comparison. The greatest known power in the world is less than nothing compared to God's power. That's what Isaiah is saying. But then the people would have asked a logical question, wouldn't they? Well, if God's that great, if God's that awesome, if he's that much more powerful than the Assyrians or the Babylonians, then what am I doing in exile? Why didn't we win? Why were we defeated? Why were we conquered? Because the nations never act independently of God. They operated on a leash, and God was sovereign over them. Even more so, he used the Assyrians, he used the Babylonians, as instruments of his divine discipline to bring his people back to him. Look at verse 18. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? 
an idol. A craftsman casts it, a, a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts, it, casts for it silver chains. He who's too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. I love this section because it's dripping with sarcasm. God's invisible. He's spirit. No one has seen God. We can't see God. Except, and we won't experience God except in the ways that he chooses to reveal himself to us. Think of what John 1.18 or 1 John 4.24 say, that no one has ever seen God. But like the nations that surrounded them, the Israelites were continually tempted to make for themselves a, a carved image, a physical representation of God, an idol. This was an abomination to God, so important that it was the second commandment, don't make for yourself a carved image, which includes carving an image of God. And some scholars think this is exactly what happened while Moses was on Mount Sinai. When he walked up to the mountain to get the law, get the Ten Commandments, he comes down, the people are worshiping what? A golden calf. It's a good chance that they were making the calf as a physical representation of Yahweh, but they were worshiping an image. They weren't worshiping God. It was an abomination to God. It did not go very over very well with Moses when he came down the mountain. And idolatry for the next hundreds and hundreds of years was a problem for God's people. Why? Well, a couple reasons. First, they wanted to look like the nations around them. But second, they wanted to worship a God that they could see. So what likeness can you compare to God? He's being sarcastic. He says, well, an idol, I suppose, a craftsman casts it, which means they make it with wood. These idols, they weren't made of pure gold. They were made of wood, and then a goldsmith would overlay them with gold. He says, even a poor man would choose wood that's not going to rot. You're going to set it up on a, a stand so that your idol doesn't tip over. It'd be embarrassing if your idol that's supposed to have power falls over. These household gods, they were more than just what the families would worship. They were heirlooms. They were quite expensive and worth a lot of money. But Isaiah paints a picture of a, a man creating this thing in the likeness of God and worshiping it, and then believing that this thing that he created then has power over his life. <laughs> when you put it that way, it's not a very wise decision, is it? God creates us in his likeness. We don't create something in God's likeness. It's the wrong direction. Man cannot create God. Would you rather worship a God that you can see that has no power or a God that you can't see that has limitless power? I'd, worship, I'd rather worship a God that I can't see. But the people of Israel over and over and over again opted for a God that they could see that had no power. And Isaiah sarcastically mocks them for choosing such a stupid option. Look at verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It's he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing, and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Isaiah is saying, surely you know. Surely you've heard. This has been a fact from the beginning of time. God is sitting above the circle of the heavens, it's a, a vantage point, a picture of, of God's perspective. From God's perspective, human beings look like little grasshoppers. From God's perspective, even the most powerful people in the world, 
they look like grasshoppers, the princes of the earth. And we see over and over again through history, over and over again through scripture, that God takes the people who the world think are the most powerful and bring them, brings them to nothing. Remember Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel? He's the most powerful man in the world. He's also the most prideful man in the world. And God takes Nebuchadnezzar and gives him seven years of insanity, or he wanders around in the wilderness like an animal for seven years, a punishment for his pride. And at the end of the seven years, he acknowledges the God of Scripture. Think of Sennacherib. He's the king of Assyria, the most powerful man in the world at the time. And, and he's knocking on the door of Jerusalem this close from wiping it off the face of the earth. And what does God do? Well, he enters into the camp one night and kills 185,000 of Sennacherib's soldiers. And he's left to wander all the way back to Assyria, to Nineveh, all by himself, where he's eventually killed by two of his sons. God takes the most powerful man in the world and brings him to nothing. Even the most powerful kings of the earth, the most powerful businessmen of the earth, the most powerful politicians of the earth are like grasshoppers from God's perspective. Look at verse 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and see who created these. He who calls out their hosts by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power, not one is missing. <laughs> you see what Isaiah is doing? If God compares us to grasshoppers, then who are we going to compare to God? Well, again, the answer is no one. There's nothing, no one that we could compare to God. Why? He says, look up and see. He's saying, go outside in the middle of a perfectly clear night in northern Wisconsin and look up. Look up at the night sky and see. God is awesome in power. And those stars, that's just a fraction of the stars in the universe, right? There's 200 trillion billion stars in the universe. And what does Isaiah say? God knows every single star, all 200 followed by 21 zeros, every single star, he has a name and not one is missing. I find that amazing considering that some of you can't remember the names of the eight other people in your small group. And God remembers and knows the name of every single star in the universe. It's incredible. And then he follows it up with verse 27. So then why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. <laughs> this verse makes way more sense when we consider the previous. If God knows all of the stars in the universe by name, not one of them is missing by the strength of his power, then how could anybody say, God doesn't see me? My way is hidden from God. God doesn't know what I'm doing. God doesn't care. He doesn't see. That didn't work very well for Jonah, did it? <laughs> Jonah had this idea that he could somehow hide from God in the bottom of a boat, and it took three days of reformation in the belly of a fish for him to change his mind. But I wonder how often we have the same attitude where we say or think something, even if it's subconsciously, like, God doesn't see, he doesn't know. What you looked at on your phone over the weekend God saw that. The show that you just binge-watched on Netflix, he saw that too. The charges you've been putting on your credit card lately, yeah, he saw that. The things you've been doing with your significant other that have been less than honoring to him, yeah, he saw that too. The things that you're thinking about, that I'm thinking about, that are running through our minds that maybe are less than honoring, he even knows your thoughts. How often do we think, 
How often do we live like God doesn't know, he doesn't see, he doesn't care? Our way is not hidden from him. It's what Isaiah reminds us. This passage, what an incredible reminder that God knows everything, that God sees everything, that he's sovereign over everything, and nothing escapes him. Nothing is hidden from him. There's no problem that's too difficult for him to solve. There's not a corner of the universe that he hasn't discovered. Nothing surprises him. Nothing catches him off guard. He alone is God, and there is no other. There is no word picture that can somehow be painted to give us an adequate picture of God's majesty. So how do we respond? So our first principle tonight The first is engage your awe. Engage your awe. I hope that as we think about Isaiah 40, that our jaw hits the floor (laughs) because of how great and, and awesome, majestic God is. He is great, and we are small. Isaiah forces us to have what we call a high view of God which is different than some trendy but unorthodox realms of theology. There's one called process theology, where God is constantly changing. He's adapting and growing with his creation. That doesn't fit very well with the book of Hebrews that says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Or how about another realm of bad theology called open theism, where God doesn't know the future. He doesn't control the future. He's just discovering the future right along with the rest of us and responds right along with the rest of us. Isaiah doesn't let us get away with that, does he? God knows he controls the future. He's sovereign over all. Isaiah makes sure that we have a high view of God. I'm convinced that one of the greatest problems, one of the greatest issues in our young adult family today is this. We often have far too high a view of ourselves and way too low a view of God. I wonder how many problems, how many issues, how many struggles, how many temptations, how many priority issues would just evaporate in our life if we had a higher view of God and a lower view of ourselves. Think of John the Baptist in John 3.30. He, Jesus, must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. One of the ways that we grow in developing a high view of God is with the book of Isaiah. This is why I'm convinced this is the book that we need right now because we need a higher view of God. And Isaiah's not going to let us get away from this book without growing in our respect and our worship and our awe of an awesome God. But Isaiah doesn't stop there. Isaiah reminds us, he encourages us, he preaches to us that God is great but at the same time that he's good, that he cares for you, that he's sovereign over your circumstances. Look at verse 28 for one of the most beautiful texts in the whole book of Isaiah. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall be faint and weary. Even young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. 
yes, God is great. Yes, he's the creator. Yes, he's the everlasting God, but he's also good. He gives power to the faint. He increases strength for those who are tired. He says that even young men, even youth, get tired and weary. It's the part of our population that thinks they're invincible. You know exactly who I'm talking about, right? And there's going to come a time when you're not as young as you used to be. You're going to realize that you're not invincible. That happened to me a year ago at the Winter Conference, actually. We played dodgeball on Friday night, and it was a blast, right? And, and I thought that I was 20 again. I thought that I could grab those dodgeballs, and I could throw them as hard as I could for an hour and a half. Yeah, I discovered muscles I didn't know I had for the next two weeks, and it did not feel good. Now, some of you are going to come, and you're going to be fine, but if, if you're pushing 30 like me, then you're going to be sore. But it's, it's 100% worth it. <laughs> be careful, Fritz. You are an easy target. <sighs> but Isaiah says that even young men, even youth grow tired the strongest in our culture are going to have to take a nap, but not God. He will never get tired. But he doesn't keep the energy, the strength to himself. He is eager. He is willing to share with those who are tired. He gives strength to the weak, so they'll fly like an eagle. They shall run and not get tired. They'll take a long hike without feeling faint. It's a beautiful passage. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. If you're over the age of 30, this is an incredible piece of Hobby Lobby art. You know what I'm talking about? You go buy the Hobby Lobby, you put it up in your living room. If you're under the age of 30, this just goes on your Instagram page, right? It's the same thing, just for different generations. But what happens when theology meets reality? Wait. I'm tired. Are you tired? But... God's going to give us strength so we fly like an eagle? Sometimes I feel like I'm a penguin trying to fly, not an eagle. I don't know about you. What do we do with that? Because you're tired. You've been tired. Maybe you walked in the door tonight and you felt like that was the last step you could take, was just sitting down in that chair. And I don't know why. There's a lot of reasons we could be tired. Maybe it was a long Christmas season and the family relationships just didn't go well. You need a month of introvert time because of all the junk that got brought up again over the holidays. You're tired. You don't feel like an eagle. Maybe it's work. And maybe it's a boss, a coworker. Maybe you've just been working a ton of hours and you are just exhausted. There is no end in sight. And you don't feel like an eagle. Maybe it's temptation. And there's the same temptation that you've been fighting over and over and over and over again. And you just keep asking, God, take this away. Why am I still fighting this? This isn't fair. You're not answering my prayer. And you just keep battling and it just doesn't get any better. And you're tired. Maybe it's chronic pain. And doctors don't know what's going on. You don't know what's going on. And you keep asking God, just take away the pain. Take away the pain. Take nothing. Still there. You don't feel like an eagle. Maybe you're just physically tired. Maybe you've been working really hard shifts at work. Maybe you haven't been sleeping. Maybe there's an infant that keeps you up in the middle of the night. And <laughs> you're physically tired. The list could go on and on, couldn't it? But there's one thing I know is true. <laughs> we, 
we all know what it's like to be tired, don't we? And if you're tired tonight, there's something Isaiah wants you to know. That God's good and he's great. That he's sovereign over your circumstances. He's not absent. He's not aloof. He's not ignoring you. He's right there with you. And he wants to give you strength. But it might not look exactly like you and I expect. Look again at verse 31. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Did you catch that? Those who do what? Wait. Huh. I'm not a big fan of that word. I don't know about you. Why can't it say, those who ask, God will renew their strength? I'd like that better. Wait. I'm not a patient person. I do not like to wait. Do you like to wait? I don't like waiting at the doctor. I don't like waiting at the stoplight. I don't like waiting for an email. You don't like waiting for that promotion. You don't like waiting for the winter to end, the days to get longer, for the man cold to finally disappear, right? You don't like waiting for that person to finally get the guts to ask you out, right? There's so many different things that you don't like to wait for. We do not like to wait. We are not patient people. But what does it mean to wait on the Lord? Does that mean that we just show up to young adults an hour early and just sit alone in this room and just wait to hear something? Does it mean that we take a silent retreat for a weekend and we go wander through the woods and wait to hear something? What does it mean? What does it mean to wait for the Lord? Does it mean that we throw our phone out the window and try to get rid of all the distractions? I don't know, maybe. One pastor put it like this, waiting is what faith does before God shows up. Huh. I'm going to say that again. Waiting is what faith does before God shows up. I thought that was really profound. Because life is filled with waiting. Specifically, the Christian life is filled with waiting. And we're waiting between the promise and the fulfillment. Think of what that, that meant for the Israelites. Think of what it meant for Isaiah's audience. They were waiting between the promise and the fulfillment. Isaiah had promised that they were only going to be exiled for 70 years and that God was going to rescue them from the hand of the Babylonians, that they were going to return to the land. But in the first year of the captivity, there was no end in sight. And they're clinging to the promise that someday they're going to go home or someday their children are going to be able to go back home after the 70 years are up. They're waiting between the promise and the fulfillment or even deeper. Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11 talks about the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, the suffering servant. And Isaiah 53 talks about this Messiah that, that's going to come and take away the sin of the world. That was 500 years before Jesus came. The Israelites were waiting between the promise of the Messiah and the fulfillment of his coming. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Aren't we waiting for the same thing? Not the first coming, but the second. We're waiting between the promise and the fulfillment. The promise of Jesus' second coming, the promise of us reigning with him in eternity forever, the promise of him restoring creation and making everything new. But has that been fulfilled yet? <laughs> no, not yet. Waiting is what faith does before God shows up. We wait, not for earthly deliverance, but eternal deliverance. We wait not for earthly rescue, but eternal rescue. We wait not for temporal relief, but eternal relief. 
the suffering, the death, the decay of life here just reminds us that this earth isn't all there is. We're waiting for Jesus to come. But the wait for a Christian is not passive. It's not lazy. We don't just get to sit in our hands and wait for Jesus to rescue us. No, our wait looks a lot like Philippians chapter 3. Listen to this, verse 13 and 14. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying he's forgetting what lies behind, and he's looking ahead. Who's he looking to? To Jesus. As the author of Hebrews says, the the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. The one who's currently seated at the right hand of God, who's waiting the appointed time for him to come back and make all things new. Our weight is focused on the goal, seeing Jesus face to face. Life here is going to be hard. I don't have a way around that. I don't. I'm comforted that it's no secret that the New Testament over and over again reminds us that, yeah, life's going to be hard. It is not going to be easy. And James, in a very comforting Verse in James 1 says, consider it joy when you face trials. Yeah, that's not comforting. Joy? Why? Well, because suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope won't lead us to shame. Suffering grows our faith. Life here is not going to be easy. But sometimes we get so focused on the pain that Jesus is blurry. Sometimes we get so consumed by our circumstances that we forget that eternity is right around the corner. We get so fixated on our pain that we stop running the race. Our weight requires the right goal. Our weight requires that we're dead set on the finish line. Our weight requires that we're looking to Jesus. I love that old chorus of the faith. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full at his wonderful face and the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That should be our heart's desire, looking to Jesus, not at our pain, not at our circumstances, but to Jesus. Does God promise to heal your chronic pain? He does. Just not today. But you keep praying. You keep asking while trusting that he's going to give you the strength to press on no matter what tomorrow brings. Does God promise to rescue you from that hard job? He does. Just maybe not tomorrow. But you cling to the promise that he'll give you strength to take the next step, even when you feel like you can't. Does God promise to give you that relationship that you've been longing for, what feels like your entire life? He doesn't. But he does promise to fulfill in himself your greatest and deepest relational desires. Does God promise to restore your broken family? 
No. But he does promise to give you strength, to honor, and to forgive those who've hurt you even when you feel like that's the last thing you could do. The Christian life is filled with waiting because we live in the in-between. We live in between the promise and the fulfillment. And even when waiting isn't easy, God's given us the opportunity to wait together. And what is this wait supposed to look like? (laughs) Well, there'd be a lot of answers to that question. But tonight, I want to focus in on one that I think comes right from our passage. How do we wait? Number two, we worship while you wait. Worship while you wait. It's a challenge to read a passage like this and not worship, right? And there's a lot of different ways that we can worship, but there's one in Scripture to me that rises above the rest, one that we see commanded over and over again, and it's singing. It's musical worship. The entire book of Psalms is the hymnal of the people of Israel, filled with praise after praise after praise of for a majestic God. But worship is a gift. Because singing is it's good for your heart. Singing is good for your heart. It's good medicine for your heart when you're walking through the pain. Because what worship does is it takes our gaze off of ourselves and onto the one who controls our circumstances. It takes our gaze off of our pain onto the finish line. It takes our gaze off of our circumstances and onto our our Savior. It takes our focus off of here and now and onto eternity. It takes our eyes off of the challenges of life and onto the one who's sovereign over all. So that's what we're going to finish with tonight. We don't do this very often. We don't often finish with the song, but there's a song that you know well that came right out of Isaiah 40. And Bobby's going to lead us and invite you to sing with him as we direct our hearts to the Lord as we respond to this text. So, Bobby, let's stand together.
Father, you are good, you are great, you are mighty. Lord, we come and we adore you for who you are because you're with us always. Lord, it might not, we might be in a season where it might feel like we're alone, but you're here, you're with us. It might be in seasons where it feels fruitful and we're growing closer with you, Lord. God, we just pray that as we go through our nights, as we dive into our small groups, Lord, let our conversation be fruitful. Let let our lives just focus on you. We just pray these things in the name of Jesus.
Amen.